Deadwood Soundwell. They've chased us round and round the barracks square. Now we're on the road to anywhere. No one's in the know. We're podcasting as we go. We don't know where we're going until we're there. But you have found The Real War Project. This is Batch 11, Episode 2. We watched 1975's Overlord. Hit the theme! This podcast contains explicit language and plot spoilers. Permission to fall in, Charles? <laughs> Permission granted. Hey, Aaron. Welcome back to The Real War Project for the episode on Overlord. And this movie was just um, really powerful. Mm-hmm. Nodding emphatically. Yeah. I, I didn't know what to expect from this movie. I looked at the poster, which is like a very close-up eyeball with a kind of blurry soldier in it. And um, the if we have time at the end, we'll t- touch on Libby Saxton's article about the falling soldier. I don't know if you got a chance to peek at that or not, but I haven't. But I um, but I've been thinking about it a lot recently because it's kind of an ongoing theme in another movie that um, that maybe we'll get into called Salvador. So this is referencing the 1936 photo. One of the photojournalists was really kind of obsessed with that photo. Yeah, I had definitely seen it. And when the, they were describing it in the book chapter, they don't have a picture in the chapter. And they were describing it. And I was like, I wonder if I can fig- figure out which one they're talking about just based on the description. And then I went and looked. And I was like, yep, I was right. That is the one I was thinking of. So, And for the listeners, this is the... Robert Kappa. Yeah, 1936 is when it's um, typically dated. It is Kappa. Uh, it says dated September 5, 1936, um, of a, a soldier potentially being shot. There's some debate about whether it's real, whether it's fake. That's kind of part of the conversation here. It's definitely a real photograph. Oh, real photograph for sure. But is it actually capturing the moment that it claims to be capturing? Or is it staged? Right. Yes. Um, but it's of the it's of a soldier getting shot during the spanish civil war i think yeah that picture was taken the book chapter says on what's called a, a leica camera do you know anything about this l-e-i-c-a mm. camera shoots 35 millimeter film i know that they're still around they're high quality yeah. and they are expensive shoots 35 millimeter which the chapter says is the same as what they were shooting for motion picture at the time mm-hmm. that's standard at the time if you want to get the feel for shooting actual motion picture uh, 35 millimeter, then you would buy slide film for that. Walking it backwards in the 1930s, Spanish Civil War, individual does or does not get shot at the moment that this camera takes a picture uh, in the same um, photographic vocabulary as cinema, cinemagraphic film at the time. You see lots of interest in this picture for all sorts of reasons, informing all sorts of films, uh, Platoon, Tropic Thunder, 
And yes, this movie here, Overlord, and we can talk about that content at the, at the back end, I think. I'm just so fascinated by this movie, by the way this movie upsets so much of what we've been talking about. This movie accomplishes a lot of what Jarhead does. It denies us a lot, but it does so in a much less winky way. If you listen to the episode on Jarhead, we said that movie is winking aggressively at us throughout the movie to try to help us understand that while everyone in the world wants this to be badass, this is not badass, I guess. I don't know. Talk to me about your reaction to this film, Charles. When did you first see this? What brought it on to the show? Um, this movie got released onto Criterion a while back. I own it somewhere, although I rebought it digitally for this um, for this thing because that would have meant going down to my basement for twenty minutes and picking through DVDs. <laughs> I don't mind shooting Criterion a little bit more money um, as long as nope. they keep restoring movies like these. But I came across this because Ebert had written a review after he had seen it at a film festival and he had given it four stars. And a lot of the time I will, if Ebert has given something four stars, then I will trust him that he's done it for it for a reason that's worth checking out at least, even if sometimes I disagree with him. RIP Ebert. And he just found this movie the same way I have just absolutely like mesmerizing. You know, there's that scene in Ed Wood where Ed Wood is talking about, mashing together all of the stock footage and how you can make a story out of it. And this movie uses stock footage to like a very fascinating effect. Yeah. And I, I really love it. Yeah. It's evident to me when it switches between the two. Mm -hmm. In particular, in the opening, I wrote um, Notre Dame is current footage like that footage when they swoop down around to me seemed to be, I think, seemed to be fairly contemporary. But the back and forth is so fascinating. And the usage of this footage compared to the exact same footage with very similar music in many history channels. So many history channels. So, so, so many history channel documentaries. And this movie is doing none of that. Um, it is, it is brushing alongside that vocabulary. I think at the very end, some of the silhouette shots of them loading stuff up and stuff. And, and the, the, the hands patent when mm -hmm. the very end, as tragic as this movie is in my mind, there's part of me that's like, this feels a bit like those history channel things. And I think someone could take some of that nostalgia away, but oh my God, the movie just upsets so much of it. It upsets so much of it through its selection and usage music. What it is, it's giving us so little about our lead character. One more quick touch before we talk mm -hmm. about the particulars of the film. I'm doing a backwards look at Jacksonian um, militarism in America because we spent some time talking about this. And I'm thinking about buying mm -hmm. you the book that I'm reading because it's just interesting. You may enjoy this. I don't know. Anyway, mm -hmm. this movie is not chauvinistic. This movie does not see the military as awesome. I mean, awesome, yes. Admirable, uh, hard sell. Awesome in like the most literal terms of awesome. Yes. A-W-E mm. is at the front of this term for a reason, and it's not the same way that like we grew up with the Ninja Turtles using this word in always yeah. popular contexts. There is a more ancient term here that is like, you are slack-jawed, and that is what awesome is. You get it? Like It's far out, but it's not far out, dude. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, if you were to go back, I mean, the rule breaker, the one-man war, uh, Jacksonian militarism is self-reliant no matter what this movie does not really give you any of that 
it cuts directly against that worldview. And if we had a little time, maybe at the end, we could touch on that. Those are the two mm-hmm. kind of like theory takeaways to look forward to. But this movie is so freaking fascinating that I just really want to get into it. <laughs> We're going back to 1975, and we are watching Overlord, directed by Stuart Cooper. I don't really know anything about Stuart Cooper. Very little. Um, I guess I could I could bring up IMDb. And if I remember correctly, Stuart Cooper got this as kind of like a project from the government, right? Like this is, this was commissioned. Starts thanking the Imperial War Museum. And I'm like, fascinating. (laughs) Right. Where he's given access to all of this footage that at that point, I think had not really been seen. And he just pieced together a story around it using it. But I think the the whole purpose was to use that footage. And I just don't see the the War College putting out a movie like this. <laughs> I, right? No. Like, I don't think the, so. The DOD is looking at this movie and just being like, we don't know what to say, but the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It starts with with some black a black screen mm-hmm. and the the sound of like hooves first, and then you hear a bunch of like marching feet boots on the ground and then you start hearing a bunch of trucks and then we see from the sky and from the ground a bunch of stock footage of exactly that just the german war machine in motion coming into occupied lands doing their thing we get footage from the sky and you fly and fly and fly around there oh i didn't know you could get on top of the Arctic Triumph. I saw that too. And then right away I looked at the leg and I'm like, there's a door. There's a little door you can go. And, and I imagine Nazis showing up and being like, this is cool. Can we get Oh, here's a door just booting it in and being like, let's just go right up. Like if you're an occupier, you don't have to care about the sign that says do not enter. You just get to march right on up there and <laughs> take a bunch of pictures. But yeah, there that was. A bunch of paratroopers died trying to get on the top and then <laughs> one of them like limped into underneath and was like, oh shit, there's a door. There's one that just lands hanging off the side and takes like 50 minutes to climb his way back up and then his friend with a sprained ankle <laughs> makes his way up the stairs and he's like oh there's you know uh yeah i wrote feet engines feet horses feet people engines like um, just lots and lots of motion zero music completely black for a lot of it and then very mm-hmm. weird war footage there's definitely war footage from history channel stuff that i've seen speaking specifically of the troops coming off the boat at the end and the hand patting the guy on the back and the guy looking there's a wedding band on one of those guys' fingers that has jumped out to me every Mm. single time i have seen that footage because i'm like who is it's weird how that one little icon makes you wonder who that dude is and when did he put it on and does he make it through the war i don't know but this intro stuff is very zoomed in i watched it in complete darkness and almost got a little vertigo Mm. That's very interesting because it it's we stay we kind of move away from the ground and we start observing everything from the sky. And in movie like feel it's like oh that's us and we're just experiencing it. And then it turns out that we're experiencing it through Hitler's eyes. It's really fascinating how it does that and how most of the war footage, not all of it, but most of it is very detached. 
it is very distant. It's very far away. And you can see people down there, but you don't really see the people until you get these cuts to like people fighting a fire and the building is collapsing on them. I'm thinking of the Guns of Navarone, which was last batch. The first episode of Batch 10 was the Guns of Navarone from 1961. And it did something that a lot of movies that we've seen does. When the Nazis show up, we hear rat a tat 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 and a bunch of like like scary these are the Nazis weird. This movie starts like this. The war is something that is happening. The war in this movie, it is not off screen like the bridge, but it is definitely away from where we are. Mm -hmm. And we are seeing it in fetishistic ways, but it's from Hitler's perspective. It's so fascinating. It's so interesting. We're like three minutes into this movie. At 3.05, I wrote Overlord, and here I have it, horror music. Yep. Yep. Overlord, it says real big. A film by Stuart Cooper. We get some very focused men in a landing craft. This is a scene that is used to us now, but must have been kind of new maybe back in the day. I don't know. Oh, did we see this in um did we see this in Longest Day? I don't think we did. The the front to back view of the boat of all of the soldiers looking grimly as the boat makes its way towards the shore. Yeah, and the Higgins boat. Yeah, yeah. right. It goes from left to right, and then at the end of the movie, we see the same shot going from right to left, and I went and checked. You don't mm-hmm. see our protagonist the first time. He is front left in the boat, and the camera starts the pan at the beginning from just behind him, and then you will see all mm-hmm. of the same faces coming back again, and you don't know any of them except for the, the last two that you see. You'll know them very little. This movie felt old. It felt like a 40s movie mm. to me. I don't know enough about yeah. that, but like I, I, I several times forgot that this movie was made in 1975. I did the thing where I kept thinking to myself, like all of these people, even if they lived long enough, may have died of old age by now. And I'm like, wait a minute. No, these people are like literally just a little older than I am. Right. It's interesting because it really drew me in that way to like believing it was filmed at that period. This is similar to Dam Busters, how they shot in black and white in order to match the the film stock. And this movie seems to take it a, a bit more, you know, they, they've kind of amped up the grain on a lot of these using a faster film and that sort of thing. The historic footage is very grainy and the contemporary stuff is mm-hmm. far smoother. It's not smooth, but it is smoother, and that is a bit that draws mm-hmm. you away. But that could be a movie from 51 or 48 or 49. I mean, that would seem the same way yep. to me in that capacity. So, yeah. And I, here we're looking at the faces of the troops. A lot of them do look young. A lot of them, I wrote, look younger than the one that I just saw that made me think young. <laughs> Later on, when they're marching around specifically, there's one swinging his arms in the front to me that looks like he's like 15. And I know he's not. But Yeah, he's probably in the real military. I think a lot about the line from Guns of Navarone, you just wasted an important human being when I'm watching this movie for some reason. We don't know many of these people. No, it's such a good line we see an out of focus running soldier like on a beach and then he gets shot like in that robert kappa photograph mm-hmm. um falling to the ground kind of in slow motion the book chapter says the director is explicitly cooper is explicitly evoking this photograph and it's happening at the it's very glorious falls forward face plants backpack over his head legs splayed up in the back and down very scary very frightening if, I mean, right away, you read this as an audience's foreshadow. Mm-hmm. You know, like for me, it's like, oh, our hero's going to die. He's going to get shot when he gets off the boat. 
Tom is coming home. He says goodbye to his mom and dad. He's been called up finally. He comes running home to get a book. And his, this is the David Copperfield. David Copperfield. And the, we never learn if he reads it or not. I don't know anything about that book. I've never read that book. I also haven't read it. And it comes up a lot in a book I'm currently reading called Cider House Rules. There you go. Where the character reads it a lot to the orphans and then takes it along with him on a trip. Well, now I probably got to read it. I did look up Career in C no, Major by James M. Kane, and we'll talk about that later. But um, right now, I just want to really <laughs> sit with this scene for a minute. We watched The Big Parade was the first um, batch, the third episode. And we see Jimmy go to war and say goodbye to his family then. And, and there's been a couple of these moments. This is very matter of fact, very little drama. No yeah. sorrow. Yeah. Just like it, it literally seems like he's going off to scouts or something. Time for the bus, lad. You don't want to miss that train. Yeah, the dad did it in World War One. it seems like. But he doesn't carry that with a level of severity. No, just like, you got to go off and do it, son. Good luck, son. The dad is like, he's not going to have time to read. He doesn't need to pack that much. They'll give him everything he needs. He doesn't even say, like, make us proud or... Like, be brave. It's literally just like... Do your duty, son. Yeah. You got called up. This movie is very flat, but very tragic at the same time. It is scary, but it is only gonna... There's a brief glimpse of gore. There's two or three very brief glimpses of gore, but it's scaring the... I don't know. It's hard to explain. Maybe we shouldn't be like that. Yeah. He makes very few choices in this movie. This is our... What's his name? Beddoes? Thomas Beddoes? He mm -hmm. is basically just going through the motions. He's asked later why he fights, and he's like, we have to cash out the ones who went in. And I'm like, terrible argument. And he's like, we have to – he just goes on and on. But he's, he's never like, yep, I've enlisted. And his parents are like, you need to enlist. It's just he goes. He just goes. Mm -hmm. he's, he, he forgot his book, and now he's got to, he, he needs to catch the train. We see right after he says goodbye, we see the nose of a bomber as it raids ships. We see out of the bomber it's flying over the ocean, bombing and shooting as it uh, flies around. I wrote banal, the war is banal, and then this happened where it is like nosing into the ocean and you see the glittering ocean in the ship below. And in my mind, I'm like, this is real footage because they're not. I mean, I guess they could do this in 1975, but not with the budget that this movie's working with. And again, they have that footage. This is a human in a vehicle doing this, this quote, stunt. And it just scares the shit out of me. It's not banal at all. And there's no like epic. It's just scary. It is a genuine roller coaster ride from hell. And you want to know if the person lives and you worry about the people on the receiving end. And then it goes back to the train and he's standing there and you hear like, yep. doo -doo. And then it goes back to the plane again, and you hear these gun sounds. The war is happening. It is far away. It is not glorious. It is not stupid. It, this isn't sarcasm. This is just the best that the movie can do to be like, here's what's going on. And it is in the vocabulary of the war bargers. This is footage given to us by the militarists. So, like, but it is... It's being stripped of legitimacy in a lot of ways, but it's still very legitimate. And then it moves from the water into onto the land, and Tom suddenly wakes up. 
Yeah. And it's like, he, is he dreaming of the war? But it's like also the war is just going on and also maybe both. Right. That he just can't stop thinking about the war. I have here too, this is where we start seeing the fire crew. We hear alarms. There's large explosions. A city's burning. Yeah. A lot of distant and then proximate. You, 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 you are literally right behind the firefighters. Again, actual footage of people fighting fires. And I'm just thinking like, well, this is their Wednesday. It's terrifying. And then it cuts to the inside of a building and you hear the explosions far away. Just pristine arched white columns. Yeah. They're baptizing a child with air raid sirens and explosion sounds in the distance. Tom misses the train. He um I guess they evacuated and they were in a in a shelter or something like that, stuck in the tube. We're gonna see him go through pretty much every step of boot camp and in processing that we have seen since Full Metal Jacket, except this movie is like Tom is just a beat behind all of it, so he doesn't get to participate. And that puts him very passive, and it puts him pretty meek, and it puts him in a place where the audience doesn't get to see all of the bros sitting on the train chumming it up as they head off to fight. You know, this movie is just a kid trying to catch a train, and he misses it. We do see kids on a train with, like, their names tagged to their clothes being sent out. Right. You know, they're being sent out to the country or something like that, a place more safe. Yeah, it made me think of the bridge where they talked about sending their kids away from the fight. Mm -hmm. And Tom is just standing there on the platform as the train leaves. He's being dropped off at the camp and the train master is like, Are you for the camp? Hey, you. Are you for the camp? Yeah. A bit late, son. The others got in last night. I know. Got caught up in that air raid, eh? Yes. Oh, well, never mind, son. You'll have to walk. <laughs> it's not many miles. You'll have to walk. This guy, again, is is so passive in the way that he's, he's like, are you here for the camp? And Tom's like, yeah. Are you for the camp? Yeah. A bit late, son. It feels like he's going to summer camp, but he is being processed to a war that is raging. And that it's going to kill so many people. And everyone is just like, well, there you go. Here it is. Don't forget your thing. And he's got his little box of lunch. And got caught up in that air raid, eh? Yes. Oh, well, never mind, son. You have to walk. <laughs> it's not many miles. Tom is, he looks older to me. I want to say he looks like early 20s even. And later we find out he's just mm. turning 21. He reminds me very much of my students and one student in particular. Very smart, very quick, also kind of fatalistic, kind of passive, kind of willing to just go where they're told, but never in a non-critical way. Tom knows he's going to die. He keeps saying this anyways. He's, there's no naivete to this character at all. He just seems like that's where he's like, well, this is what I'm supposed to do and this is where I'm going to go. And it just haunts me. He shows up to his unit, and, you know, it's the same everywhere, right? Thomas Beddoe, sir, you're late. They're going to start yelling at him. <laughs> he walks into his, like, squad room, and there's a guy sitting there, and he's like, 
Who are you then? Uh, Beto's, Beto's, sir. Do I look like an officer to you? And he's like, when he said, do I look like an officer? I'm like, I don't know. I think the answer is no. I'm going to say no, because I have no, I guess stripes are what you look for. But- Your tone says no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He tells him that he has to leave the room. He hasn't asked for permission to enter the room yet. And then when he goes to leave, he's like, take your bag. And he like has to come back and grab his bag and leave completely and then knock on the door. It's great to just talk to people as if they should already know it. (laughs) Well, I feel like that is part of this kind of ongoing ideology of militarism that we've talked about, which is like, if you don't know what to do already, you may be already dead. So we are going to yell at you for not knowing what to do, even if you've never been told and you never knew you were supposed to know. This is Hartman-esque. Who said that? Hartman won't come for another, you know, 10 years or so, but it is not Hartman. Okay, all of you, you're going to keep this lot so clean it dazzles me, and you're going to start now. The Wand of Command, stand easy. You will not move at all until that Wand of Command is given to you. You will not fidget, move about, or anything else. Is that understood? Yes, Is that understood? Yes, Otto! A big part of the militarism is like, we're going to degrade you and put you down and toxic masculinity, American and otherwise, is going to say there's a challenge in that that we love. Have a great conversation with Dr. Amanda Taylor about the patriarchy mindset inherent in like ancient Roman poems and knights and stuff and like tearing the man down, as we have said on this show quite a bit is a part of the challenge of making you a better man. This movie makes Thomas kind of dopey and kind of grumpy and kind of sullen. And he's being punched around and kicked around, but it isn't in these glorious ways. It's from this dude who is reading Career in C Major by James M. Kane. And I just want to read you the synopsis. Quick little paragraph here, Charles. Did you look this up? or No, I couldn't quite read what he, uh, what he was reading there. I was so curious. I'm like, what is this dude reading? Because this guy is interesting. Okay, all of you, you're going to keep this lot so clean it dazzles me. Definitely power trippy. Definitely loves the fact that he's in charge of this like bunk of like 13 dudes or something. And he's reading Career in C Major by James M. Kane. One quick paragraph. Ever since she got married, Doris has regretted giving up her singing career. After years of domestic drudgery, she decides to take one last crack at becoming an opera singer. Even if it means sacrificing everything for the sake of her dream, her contractor husband is fully supportive, having no idea that the family's true musical genius isn't Doris. It's him. Career in C major. (laughs) And he's a contractor, huh? So he's like overseas in Syria. In my mind, I'm like, we're going to take the word contractor out of this movie that is definitely not about a military contractor or this book. (laughs) 
And yeah, and we're going to take 13 hours and we're going to connect two dots and we're going to get Jim from the office on the phone. Oh, he's going to be gonna playing guitar and singing. How is his baritone? <laughs> and we're going to figure this shit out, Charles, because this is one of the most interesting things from the movie is I'm like, this dude's reading this book? Not what I expect. I hope he brings peace to the Middle East through music. <laughs> And he writes an opera that that decolonizes the British mindset and leads to a complete reversal of impurity. <laughs> no, I don't think that's what it's about. <laughs> yeah, career in C major. Might need to check this out. We get some vaccinations. The guys are getting vaccinations, and when Thomas comes up there, he gets um, he gets poked and then falls to the ground, and then um, and then we see Thomas and his soon to be friend sitting on a bench together he goes i don't like needles i don't like this whole salt on army yeah thomas isn't naive but he's definitely not holistic in his worldview he just experiences the experience and comments on the experience with an end towards an eye on his fate i guess but he doesn't really see the bigger picture you get it and this guy is going to give him that a lot i don't know if this is the same guy that confronts him on the train and says it's not a joke i think it is yeah that scene gave me chills this dude's been there he knows mm-hmm. what's going on yeah he implies that he was there um four years ago when i imagine with dunkirk and all that other shit i'm probably going to say this too many times but batch six of this show episode three was jarhead and part of what we were looking at in that movie is how jarhead recruits pieces of full metal jacket and apocalypse now to speak against war this movie comes out way before jarhead or whatever um but they are both recruiting the exact same things in terms of in processing like showing up riding the bus like getting the needles getting your uni all of these things in starkly different ways both trying to critique the experience but in starkly different ways and i don't know that we even need to have the like which is more or less effective conversation because they're both very effective in their own way it's Mm -hmm. just fascinating to see the vocabularies doing very different things barracks inspection can you tell me what you've got there you gotta list off to the guy a whole list of all the things that you have one pair of drawers cellular one balaclava one pair of braces, one pair of boots, greatcoat, socks, vests, gaiters, webbing, packs, large and small, battle dress, gas mask, mess tins, mug, knife, fork, and spoon. Anything else? He forgets that he has a pull-through for his rifle. What's this? It's a pull-through. You're learning. The look of little pride on his face when he thinks he's landed it. Mess tins, mug, knife, fork, and spoon. And he's like, what are you forgetting? Anything else? He's like, oh, God damn. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. And he doesn't have to like do 20 push-ups or anything. He just gets like demeaned a little and he marches away. I want to back up for two seconds because when he really shows up at the very beginning, one of my favorite shots from the whole movie is him walking onto the parade grounds with all the lines drawn and just nobody huh. there. It's completely empty. Yeah. That was where I got the mindset where I'm like, they're doing all the things, but they're not doing the things. This is the yes, sir, drill sergeant. Can you be the baddest, meanest? Yes, sir, drill sergeant. Like that moment happens here, but he missed it. (laughs) He's too late. And I don't know that that moment happened. They probably wish they had Jamie Foxx, but like it's it's stripped of all of that. We get lots of yelling and marching up and down the square. They do march up and down the square. Marching up and down the square. That is, unless any of you got anything better to do. 
Oh! The marching I know is legit, and I know that this is part of the pomp of the ceremony, but the rigid soldier marching. The stomp stomp. It does look a little ridiculous. I've been watching a lot of footage, as all of us have, of Vladimir Putin entering and exiting a room. I cannot get over how Russian soldiers tilt their head up into the side. When he walks by, if you watch him walk by soldiers at the door, the way that the soldiers, they don't follow him with their gaze the same way that most military people do. Their head goes like up into the side. It's really weird. Like he said something crazy? <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. You get to see how they make the blocks of soldiers. How do you how do you make a block of people into three organized lines? be honest when you uh when you nail it as a unit it's like it's a pretty cool feeling everybody's boots make the same noise together you know it's uh it's quite cool um especially when you get everybody like presenting their rifles and whatnot um you know rifles in real life don't jangle like they do in movies they're usually pretty well fitted together and make no noise I would hope so. In order to get those noises, you like slap the rifle as you're like moving it from position to position. And it's so satisfying. Is that how they just real specifically the scene where he's like, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. You know that scene I'm talking about? And then he has mm-hmm. them all push each other off and they you hear the little penguin feet as they like shuffle themselves down. Is that what you did? Did you do that exact thing? Or? Not ex- that exact thing. You can tell them to count off. When you tell them to count off, they l- everybody looks off to their right, except for like the first guy who's always looking straight. One, yeah, two, and then the guys three, will four, look forward five, as they six, say their number, seven, eight, and then nine, it'll go ten, through there, and then you'll 12, say the odd, odd ranks. You know, one step to the forward. One pace forward. Even numbers. One pace to the rear. But this is usually something that we would practice when we're doing like PT. So you're not like doing like push-ups into somebody else's feet or something like that. <laughs> well, they'd pr- I w- they would make you do it a lot. I bet. Yeah, we did it every morning. That's how they move you. It's parade. Is is that part of parade? Mm-hmm. Yeah, dr- uh, drill and ceremony. A lot of people I found don't practice this. Like other units don't practice it a lot. We practice it all the freaking time. We marched everywhere as a as a platoon um for pt and stuff like that and pretty much everybody on kelly hill did um the other thing is we'll we'll say dress right dress and that means that you'll then put your arm out to get like the the distance and then you can also say um there's a there's another one where you close the ranks more and you will you hold your arm up almost like a little teapot and uh the arm of the teapot and then you come in like that to to close it up the other places I've seen this is marching band. I never did marching band, but I watched them. Mm-hmm. And this is how they learn to make, make make Pac-Man on the field and make Pac-Man eat the ghost during the halftime show on with like a hundred or a thousand people. They can do that. Yeah. And I've also seen it and done it. And here's where I thought of you in theater. 
Like you go to theater school and this is how you choreograph and block people. And it is far less severe <laughs> and less like mechanized. But the concept is the same. And it is, again, it's always going to be interesting to me the ways that we can communicate concepts that then can move whole like bodies of bodies, large bodies, the scale. This movie gets that scale again. I've said it a lot on this show. A few things boggle my mind more than the scale of the military. And just some of the pictures are just rows of trucks. And mm-hmm. and even this little moment is how you see how they get these 13 people to go from the barracks to the truck and from the truck to the boat and the boat to the yeah. thing. And- and the movie opened, you know, with like the, the carts of the horses and then just blocks of men moving. And you see it from the sky. It's just like lines of them. The huge epic proportions of it are constantly coming into your frame, but it's always away and far away, and maybe he's dreaming, and maybe he's not. And we're building it from the ground up one piece at a time, and there's a line in the movie at the end where he's like, the war just keeps getting bigger, and we just keep getting smaller until there's nothing left. And I'm like, yeah, you're doing that in this movie really well. I see that really well. If you ever wanted to check out some interesting marching, you should check out the... uh the French Foreign Legion. They have, I I might've brought that up another time, but they're, they're unlike other people who usually march very quickly. I feel like um, compared to the British, I feel, I think we march maybe a little bit faster. But then you see like other armies that are like really going at it. And um, and then, you know, we all have seen the Germans goose-stepping and stuff. It's so fascinating. The Foreign Legion has a very, very slow march. It's like half the speed of ours, and it's hard to do because it's like you don't walk that way. (laughs) And it's really interesting to see them in contrast to other units because then also their cadences that they sing together are super slow. And it's it's like I'm thinking if the music is the solution, as long as you've got a song, you know how to move. It makes a it makes a very fascinating um, entrance. Can I say a silly thing that's off topic, but who cares? Um, yeah, go ahead. We started the Star Trek episode with you asking permission to come aboard the bridge or whatever because the doors open. That was our little gag there. Okay, that's what they say there. Here we said permission to fall in. There's Those are two slightly different sentences that are functionally accomplishing the same thing. I want to come to where you are, but the vocabulary is so different. And the phrase fall in is so it, – it's a very infantry phrase. Mm-hmm. Coming on the bridge is about the space, and, and you're not really among the people there because, like, the captain – you can't really fall in with the captain. It doesn't really work that way. <laughs> you fall in with the grunts is where you fall in, I guess. I don't know. It's interesting. We never, we never used it in the term of for entering a room, but, you know, there you did have to knock and say you know so and so permission to to enter request permission to speak or something like that if you were like going into like the sergeant's room or something along those lines um but we did use fall in a bunch 
you know, when you just needed to form up the platoon really quickly. And so you just have a guy stand there, you fall in and the whole unit will like, You'll hear will it like in front Band of, of Brothers you. and stuff. They'll all be hanging out, kids, just cigarettes, la la la. And someone will say, fall in. And everyone will look serious and go run into the thing. And they, it's like, that's how it works. Right. And it seems to make a lot of sense along those lines. But I always kind of wondered why it was so important for us <laughs> to scramble to do this. And it never occurred to me until I was watching people playing war of rights online uh-huh. and i was watching the guy who was playing as a commander to the unit and he was like spotting people and then like running out into a field and then having the unit fall in as quickly as humanly possible in the firing line and then they were firing and then like running back into cover and i was like oh i bet units actually fucking really did that and that's why you would need them to be able to fall in so unbelievably quickly on you and fill in the gaps is so that you wouldn't just truly be standing out there all the time. Another place you see this is in sports and there's a sports podcast out there somewhere, but you'll see this with the no huddle offense. Everyone needs to be in the same place at the same time and you have to know exactly what to do. And if there's 13 of you, that's hard. If there's 150 of you, that is hard. And if you don't do it right, we're going to lose the game and or this battle slash war. The ideologies are very similar. The performances are so similar. There's whole nonverbal papers on like the rhetoric of walking that can be applied here that would be so fascinating. I dig it. The unit was formed in 1685. Why? But why? Why? Why was it formed? Why? Why do you think? To impress the French. (laughs) Great line. It's like the one moment of nationalism that this movie has, really. Like, (laughs) there's no Churchill speech. There's no mom and pop waving the flag fight for the country. He's got a weird bit at the end where he's like, we got to win it for the, we got to cash out the ones who bought in or whatever he says. This is the one line that I'm like, a little bit of flag waving here. (laughs) To impress the French. Marching and yelling, more marching and yelling. And then we get actual training footage of obstacle courses. Mm-hmm, there it is. Does the audio, added audio to the old clips, does that detract anything from you? Would that take you out of it at all? I don't know. How about you? What do you think? It, I, I think it, without the audio. I didn't audio, mind it really, honestly. It, it, it feels very detached without the audio. And it feels like you're, you're definitely watching not so much people, but like footage. And when yeah. the audio is put in, it gives it a level of gravity. And even if it's like silly, the guy kind of yelling at him and all of that kind of stuff. It always feels summer campy to me here too. Again, I'm like, we should look at this with full metal jacket and all that other stuff. But um, it does a good job of making them all look kind of small and far away. And we don't really follow Beto's through this. We just mm-hmm. see the people, the footage. I feel like a lot of times it shows the aggregate. Beto's isn't in the scene. They're not paying yeah, 4,000 totally. extras to run an obstacle course. Like, that's not Ew. how this movie is going to work. And that does a really great job of atomizing him when we cut to those moments. Like, I like at the end of 1917, I don't know that we really should be able to see our hero. Like, there's just too many things going on in that moment. He should be in, in 1917 as he's like the, the big money shot at the end. He should be telling all of the guys as he's like, stop, stop, stop. There's... I have orders to stop the attack. And as he keeps saying that, it like 
all of those guys start spreading the word and you see more and more people like a wave behind him and then when you see the commander's office like 80 guys pour in <laughs> it's like a flock of starlings just all <laughs> coming straight to the commander's office <laughs> we don't actually have to do it sir we don't actually we don't actually have to do it everyone's just <laughs> Shouting, fall in! Yeah. <laughs> the hero gets killed in a crush. Yeah, just one shell takes out like the entire unit at that point. That didn't work very well. It's <laughs> fired from their own guys. Yeah, it was right. from the uh, it was from the bad guy to uh, to Pads of Glory. Well, you weren't supposed to be running sideways. That's where we sighted the fifty cal. <laughs> he gets them all to run laterally, and they just get cut down by their own fire. Not good. Not good. I did find a review where somebody had said that the odd, the added audio for them detracted from it. Um, and I was like, huh, I didn't feel that. So anyway, I had to ask. This movie is not strictly critical. This movie is not. I mean, it's a horror movie. The music is strictly critical. Um, the editing, I feel like, is fairly strictly critical and just the way it cuts to the war footage we've said. Um, but there's a lot of moments where it's like dropping this. It, it does feel like a 1950s war movie. Mm-hmm. It does. And and part of me is like, I do want a little bit of that. We've talked a lot about how do you critique propaganda without reinscribing propaganda. I love our episode on Behind Enemy Lines where we accidentally make propaganda like three times. <laughs> Charles and I are not good at this. But um, it's it's funny because I want this movie to feel like and look like a movie from the time and do all of the things that it's doing. I think that's pretty important. The training montage ends with a guy falling right into a hole and going, Oof! and then it's a hard cut. Mm-hmm. We see Tom and I forget what the other guy's name is. I can remember any of the other dudes name and I'm not sure we really hear them. The movie's not super invested in these other people besides to say that they're friends of his and he knows them a little. This is Arthur. Right. The other guy, the more experienced guy is Jack. Arthur, Jack, and Tom. Got it. I think there's like 17 mm-hmm. people casted at the end of this movie. And again, I'm like, feels like a play. Whenever I see yep. a cast list that small, I'm like, that could be a stage production. I don't know that you could do this as a stage production with a huge screen in the back for all the war footage, maybe. And that could be kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And the stage crew has plenty of time to set up the next scene. Right. Arthur and Tom, they are marching along during a training exercise and they're way behind and Arthur stops to have a smoke. I hate this war. You'll get through. It's not that. It's me girl. He was going to get married to this girl, and then the war started, and he got called up, and the dad said that he couldn't marry him anymore, and right. um, and that if he comes back, then then they can talk about it. And he wants to start a garage. He asks Tom who he's got waiting for him, and Tom's just got his mom and dad and Daisy, and Daisy is not a pretty brunette with... Uh, you know, a great figure. No, there's She's Tina. A, a Tina, it's sorry. Tina. She's a dog. And they. this is a very stereotypical movie moment. We don't get a lot from either of these characters, so I don't know that it... I mean, it, it, it endears us to the protagonist and we get to know these characters a little bit, but it's it's not really dwelling on this as much as it does. And then he just falls down a mountain. <laughs> his, uh, the dad of uh, of his girlfriend, of Arthur's girlfriend... He'd let the Jerry's poke his wife if they so much as knocked on the door. I'm like, what is that line about? He just, I mean, obviously he hates the dad and he's just taking a shot at the dad. You just... say, why, why aren't you going to let me marry your daughter? Why are you making such a big deal about this whole thing? Mm-hmm. Tomorrow is the end of training, we also learn. Mm-hmm. And that he, they're going to go to a movie theater and you go there for the uh, for the ladies. 
and that um, you're going to be leaving out in the back by the time the by the time the titles come up. It's not the movie, really. It's the other part that they're there for. While they're having the smoke and talking about this, there's planes doing training runs, like, like dive bombers and, and planes doing training runs. And I do feel like it's it's drawing us closer to that footage. It is. This is like the most proximate that he has been to those actual machines of war. Um, you know, as far as I know so far, the moment Arthur where he says tries, that he wanted to be a pilot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the other guy says he wanted to be a pilot, but he failed the physical. He tries to get caught up, and he falls down the hill. And here in the in the parentheses, I'm like, this feels like a film. This like scene <laughs> of him like falling down, and you get a shot from the left, and then a shot from the right, and they're all really close. We don't really see him falling down the hill. We just see him rolling. It's like a, a fairly cheap effort financially. Works. It's fine. What is this doing? What's, what's happening? I don't understand why this is there and what it's doing. Just nonsense that, that happens out there. He's trying to get a go, go and get caught up, and then he immediately just eats shit. He's clumsy. He's not ready. He's not really a soldier. It's not showing him like really becoming more badass. It's not like Rocky, you know, where we're like getting to see him like it's really noble, you know? right? Like he he doesn't look wimpy, but he does look wimpy. But the music is scary. The music is like really scary. <laughs> I don't know. It looked pretty steep. I mean, it's it's hard to sell it sometimes with your lens. There's bluffs and dunes here that you think you could maybe make your way down, and you would definitely eat shit like this if you tried and. Mm-hmm. especially if you're carrying all that nonsense yeah I don't know. and he gets in trouble for it he does you get in, he got in trouble for getting hurt and then he gets to to sit by himself and it's like his first moment of peace there's no yelling yeah no people banging on things there's this the scene in the boat where the other guy i think it's jack or whatever is like i'd still be sitting there waiting to be made an officer if they gave me the choice i absolutely loved that line this is kind of <laughs> his version of that he's sitting there and i'm like well that's not so bad yeah <laughs> That seems actually kind of nice. I'd be getting into trouble all the time if that's where I had to go. I'm sure it's not great, but, you know. There's a moment where he almost looks at us. He does! I I wrote I that. I couldn't tell. Uh, I wrote, does he look at us? Yeah. What does he, that mean? It definitely made me sit up because he's just sitting there. He looks kind of bored. And then all of a sudden, he like he seems to turn his eyes directly at the camera. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've been talking to Biggs a lot about fourth wall breaks because that's the first episode of the trope show that he wants to put together. And I don't know if that counts. I don't think it does, but right before it, it did the thing from guns of Navarone where he's laying on the bed with the lights going across his eyes and in guns of Navarone, I'm like, that's a movie thing. Every time I see that, mm-hmm. I'm like, that's a movie thing. And I thought about that here too. He's it's like a kind of like romantic moment. Typically. I don't know. It's an intimate moment at the very least. Is this like a monster at the end of this book sort of thing where he knows that he's being watched almost and and that if we keep watching it, we're dooming him to this death that he knows is going to happen? Whoa. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love that. I, this movie, like, I don't want to watch. I don't want to follow Tom. I don't. Like, th- there's multiple points in this movie. Because then there's also the thing where where the action of the movie is real, horrible war. Yes. yes. Yeah. Actual war. It is, It is. again, it is gory. There are two moments of very explicit gore, mm-hmm. like stomach-churning gore that I feel like are fairly honest. 
It's not giving us lots of those. And we could have that conversation. Maybe. Is it necessary? I don't know. If it's trying to feel like a a 40s, 50s movie, it can't have any of it. Mm -hmm. So like tucking it in there in little moments that ambush you and then draping it in this like like kind of um what's the word i want the kind of glossy gauzy romantic thing of the 50s and then he's like inviting us to watch it and i again this is one of the moments where i'm like i don't want to see this guy hit the beach yeah this movie is called overlord the audience knows where he is going and and you know not all the beaches are the same and you know we touched on that a little bit in um the longest day some beaches are pretty shitty and some beaches not so bad, but I just don't want this dude going ashore. I just, he, uh, the next day he's in formation and, um, Arthur's behind him and he's like, Oh, you get a good night, night of rest. Then <laughs> he throws two <laughs> fingers up at him. He's flipping him off in Brit- in the British way. And then the other guy, the corporal up at the front is like, what's that sign then? And he's like, just only for victory. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It depends on which side you're standing on, whether or not it's a fuck you. Yeah. We've talked about one of the the things we go looking for in a lot of these movies are like the good old boy stuff, the the camaraderie moments, the squad moments. I didn't remember Arthur or Jack's name. I definitely mem- remember their performances, their visible, meaningful characters. Mm-hmm. And there are these camaraderie moments. They They meet girls. They go to the movies. They do all of this stuff. So this movie is, again, very stereotypical. It's it's doing all of the things that every war movie that we've ever seen will do in much more subdued ways. Hard cut to a propaganda remix of German footage. What the fuck? This just blew my mind. Listen to the music, listen to the marching, and imagine that you are seeing Nazi soldiers parading, but they're edited so that they're like going forward and then going back, like repeating the same movements again and again and like Hitler's like greeting people and then he does that and then he walks away then he comes back and the moves like boing you are here with old Tom Beddoes who just fell down a hill (laughs) and this is what they're trying to make of the the Nazi war machine that is doing all that stuff going off in the other side he's being hit on by According to the credits, a prostitute. Mm. She's very disinterested in the movie, very interested in him, marching her fingers towards his crotch across his pant leg. He's very uncomfortable with that kind of intimacy, it would seem. The movie is wildly freaky to me because it's like I'm sitting there in the theater with him watching this and being like, those are very serious people. And those, like, the Nazis always look scary. I mean, they're using their own propaganda footage, which is meant to make them look scary. And they always look scary. And when you do it like this, it's scarier. It's like, are y'all idiots? Who made this movie? (laughs) Get the director in here. I have some words. (laughs) Yeah. And at this point in the war, like, they're, we know how scary they are. They're no fucking joke, and that's why Overlord needs to happen, is to even just get back onto the fucking continent. This is from a population experiencing the Blitz. They need some lighthearted moments, I guess. They need to laugh. They need that. Part of me wonders, syncing up this kind of music with these kinds of movements is kind of a spectacle. They're kind of trying to show off what they can do a little bit, I guess. This is like a proto-pogo video. 
Mm-hmm. That guy who does like the uh, the the remixes of songs using clips from movies and stuff is Mary Poppins. One's pretty good. <laughs> The media is very interesting. They watch this movie, which is really freaking weird. We get a dance that we're going to go to in a minute, and I'm pretty sure the music they're dancing to is we don't know where we're going until we're there. We see this girl singing this song that I had to look up that's Terry, let him Terry or whatever. It's so creepy. The media is indoctrinating. The media is propaganda, and it's all slightly nefarious. I don't know. Weird. Effective. I didn't realize that lady in the theater was a prostitute. I didn't until I saw the credits. I was like, oh, I guess he just doesn't like older women, is what I was thinking. <laughs> Beddoes is not ready for this, and he needs to leave the theater, and <laughs> there he goes, <laughs> out the back. <laughs> Can I say one more thing about the theater? Mm-hmm. The Brit News movie tone. I don't know if you remember the Brit News movie tone image at the beginning of that propaganda piece. Mm-hmm. It did the same drum thing that 20th Century Fox does. It goes, brup up, brup up. <laughs> But then instead of going, bum, 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 that's 20th Century Fox, this one goes. This is movie time. It looked like 20th Century oh. Fox. It looked like it. And I'm like, media conglomerations old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and tropage is old. It goes way, 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 way back. And you see it. He falls down the hill. He runs away from this woman. He's not ready to be a man. <laughs> yeah. In fact, he just goes for a bike ride. No whistling, but yes. <laughs> Yeah, just goes on a nice, peaceful bike ride. He goes and visits some old castle ruins, Mm -hmm. and then a Lancaster bomber flies, and it flies over those same ruins. Mm -hmm. And eventually, the nice, peaceful music is overtaken by the sound of the engines of the bomber. Yeah. War in the sky at night. Flashes of bombs. It looks like a coal bed in a fire. Oh, totally. If you've ever looked at the coal bed of a fire when everything's going out, it's that, except these flashes going off. And one of them was so bright, it like lit up the whole neighborhood. It's like you're looking at this dark frame, and then this explosion goes off, and you can see all the houses and trees and scale. And what else? Well, dead bodies. This is where we get it. They start showing us dead bodies, and quite a few flashes of it. Burned husks, I wrote, of people. With little piles of entrails in the middle. And cities. Very legit footage that really evokes a lot of the conversations we've had about presenting and representing images of violence. I don't know if those are real. I assumed that they were. I think that's real. And yeah. here it gets to be a really problematic question. you know. And, and it, I think the Welcome to Sarajevo episode is kind of good on this. And we had a whole batch on that about representation. And we've said, I want the movie to be honest. but. It's also just weird to use moments like this, even for this kind of spectacle. I don't know. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, he looked at us earlier saying, you want to keep going? 
to watch this freaking movie where I die and real people are dying. The war is relentless. The war is on a scale that makes everyone and anyone pretty invisible, but it does genuine and traumatic damage. The magnificent bomber that started with the, the beautiful music and then ended with the sound of engines and then just destruction. I said the magnificent bomber destroys... We just all come together as societies and just make a lot of shit. I was watching underwater footage of like an aircraft carrier that was decommissioned and sunk. And it was like, that's so much, so much resources to build that fucking thing. And it's just sunk. I just keep talking about how one year I needed $8,000 for the debate team and the community could raise 350,000 for a football team that didn't even exist. And then I watch movies like this and I'm like, college could be free and housing Mm -hmm. could be free though those bombs each could like (laughs) tom is in a train and he's having a dream and in the dream he's kitted out and he finds a dead german soldier flips him over sees his own face looks a lot like him doesn't even react to it yeah Mm-hmm. He flips him over and the camera gives us this up look at him and he's got the paint on and he's dirty and he's got the net on his helmet and he's like in the field and this has definitely not happened. So it's like here he is dreaming himself as this soldier finding his like, he, you know, we don't see him kill anybody or anything. But he's like, I'm going to roll this corpse over and takes out this tin of tobacco and just going through his pockets, pulls out a lock of hair that he then just drops and it lands on that soldier. And I'm just like, oof, like that's a lot. And then he takes out these pictures and he's just kind of looking at them. And then it cuts to like his own version of this. Well, yeah, he finds a picture of that of that German soldier, like his own like kind of like recruitment picture. Really intense because it's like when when it happens the first time, it is literally just a body. This is a moment that happens in war movies a lot. They find the corpse. They go through the effects of the corpse and the audience is like, that was a person and this belonged to someone. And, you know, it's like. That person put the tobacco in there before they got shot. Now they'll never smoke the tobacco. It's just this weird existential moment. And the first time it does it, it's with a picture we don't care about at all. And the second time, then it cuts to his picture. And that's him in that picture. In Before the Rain, we talked about how we see a picture taken at the beginning of some characters that we care a lot about. And then that picture gets shown later by someone who's just looking at faces. And they're like, oh, there goes one. And the audience is like, ugh. That matters. That one matters. He also dreams that he's running, running through a field. It's like a big helicopter shot. Just running. There's gunfire. You can hear it off in the distance. There's some explosions near him. He's running through trees, just running and running and running with his gun. Sideways tracking shots, overhead shots of him running. A little Band mm-hmm. of Brothers vibes here where there's at least one scene that starts with the dude just running all by himself. Mm-hmm. And then we hear, get down there, get down. Get down there. And get then down. we see that guy. There's a huge explosion of him right yeah. in front of him. Yeah. And, and he dies sort of in the same position each face time. down, backpack flying forward, legs splaying up back behind him. And that wakes him up. Mm-hmm. And he got to put his head out the window of the train. And I'm like, don't stick your head out the window of a moving train. And directly above him on the window, like every train on the planet is a sign that's like, don't stick your head out the window of a train. <laughs> You don't want to hit a tree branch going 70. You want, unless you want to put a, st- put a stamp on it first. Get the old mail catch. Yeah. <laughs> that way someone could pick it up and return it to sender when you hit the, the <laughs> signage on the side of the train tracks with your forehead. Thankfully, that does not happen. He 
goes on to get in the boat. Gets a conversation with Jack. Jack comes and sits down this with him. This conversation. Asks him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a pretty good one. I suppose someone's got to go first. It means we'll be the first to show when they do put on the sodding invasion, that's what. I suppose someone's got to go first. It's no fucking joke. It's no fucking joke. And then they laugh about it, and then they sit there like, <laughs> it isn't though, like it really isn't. <laughs> yeah, no, for real though, it's no fucking joke. Very difficult. I see a soldier that is trying to tell a new person that they do not know what is going on, but at the same time, they don't want to dwell in how scary it is either. They don't want, like, (laughs) everyone's going the same place. This train is nice and peaceful, but where we're going is not. I don't want to think about it. You don't want to think about it, but don't treat it like that because that ain't where we're going. He he knows that they're they're going for some sort of assault training, and that means that they're going to be the first guys to go. And it means no bullshit when it's time to go. The way he says no fucking joke gave me chills. It's no fucking joke. It gave me absolute chills. This guy is is very placated about it, but very serious. That came across. We get to see a whack get sexually harassed by an entire train of GIs. Sounds about right. Again, this Mm -hmm. is a movie. It's a war movie. And and they're doing all the things that war movies do. Literally every single part. Yeah, this is just actual real footage. So, yeah easy as that fuck landing in that boat right Mm -mm. Mm -mm. holy shit we see real footage here of people practicing some sort of landing into into what just i i was thinking like yikes did i just watch a whole bunch of guys just right before they died because holy fuck i don't swim i don't know how hard that is to do that because i can't even swim so We've talked about the Buds footage here on this show. We watched the old Lone Survivor back there. And there are definitely times where they're out there and I'm like, you could get crushed. When the wave pushes the boat in and the guy is clinging to the front of the boat and they are literally going into the rocks, the forces at play there will just grape you. You just get graped up against the rocks. And this is training? Yeah. And later he's like, it was hard. And I'm like, it was. It was very hard. It was in my mind, when they go and they're like, you're going for training, I had this moment kind of like the bridge where I'm like, maybe they don't even get the training. Maybe this is one of those movies that's just like, nope, we got to go. We got to go. Mm. And, and that's a scary part where as a troop, you just don't know. You, just, you hope it's yeah. training. And then you get out there and you're like, I guess this is better than the actual thing, question mark, because it's frightening. Also, the the downward look at the boat that has like the doors that close over it. Did you see that one? It was a Higgins boat mm-hmm. type craft, but it had these doors that seemed to close over it, over the top of it, so that you're oh. in this like tomb on the water. And the voiceover says something like, you're going to sit there until we tell you to. You are remain in these positions until you are instructed to hold tight to ram the beach. And all these dudes are sitting there looking up sullenly from inside. I'm like, <laughs> mm-mm, mm-mm. no, thank you. Nope, 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 nope. Really fascinating stock footage here. Just yes. totally mesmerizing. All the beach stuff. Yeah, big flail tanks like Sherman's rolling along there with with just rollers of chain whipping up for mines. Um, they still do that. And, and taking out barbed wire, yeah. Oh, yeah, just absolutely wrecking barbed wire. And laying down what looks to be like fabric, I guess, that is like traction for troops and things to come. And Yeah, possibly. I'll, I kind of wanted to see that one go over some wire, but it cut before it. <laughs> I wanted to see to it go over stuff. a bunch of like Nazis. It's like we're just going to shrink wrap them with this thing to the earth. <laughs> it's just <laughs> we do it. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's, it's like flypaper. 
Right. And as we record this, the 4th of July is rapidly approaching, and we won't be celebrating in our family because the Roe v. Wade decision makes that practically impossible for anyone with a conscience yeah. to believe in freedom today. But um, this spinny wheelie thing with the, the, the Holy rockets shit. on the side, I'm like, don't show this to American audiences because we will absolutely buy these things at Walmart and send them into the Arizona desert for the 4th of July. And we're going to burn down our whole country if you do, because these things are insane. I wrote, we all wish that rocket wheel worked. Yeah. <laughs> we I mean, all silently wish that rocket spool worked so that we could see a Saving Private Ryan where that thing goes flying up the beach. It just said, I'm like, why can't they send 80,000 of those ashore? <laughs> oh, that would have been fucking insane. As a troop, you're watching this and you're like, oh, they clearly got this figured out. And then I just imagine all this going off in situ and it's just like a total shit show. And it's like, no, though, that's not how the training is also straightforward. They're like, you need to rally to your point and that point, And then you're going to go to here. And I'm like, that's not how it typically is going to go, though. Like, it's going to be a lot harder than that, especially not with all those rocket wheels flying around. <laughs> just 50 rocket wheels per side, like Braveheart coming together. Just this is a bloody nightmare. They're inside a Higgins boat doing training in there. Everybody's sick. Yeah. I think I'm going to be sick. Yeah. Yeah. Afterward, they go to a dance. Yeah, this was sweet. Yeah. This was very sweet. You know, Tom isn't normally into it. He says that the whole regiment's there. And then he sees a pretty lady sitting there in a polka dot dress. She seems automatically sad. Like, there is a sadness in her where I, like, feel like four years ago she lost a boyfriend when he says we gotta finish it for the ones that went before there's a moment where i'm like she may know some of them or one of them mm -hmm. yeah she she seems i mean the, the very next scene where they kiss and everything like she doesn't seem super crushed she's definitely there for that mm -hmm. you know but i felt the same thing too i really did this is sweet but also kind of melancholy and definitely tragic you know it's like yeah some sweet, awkward conversation, and then they do some good old social dancing. Some really awkward conversation. Some, like, really adorably awkward conversation. There's so many moments where I just giggle. Especially at the end where he's like, she's like, can you take me back to the dance hall? And he's like, yeah, I'll take you anywhere. And she's like, to the dance hall. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> right. Yeah, I wrote, thankfully, Tom doesn't seem like an asshole. Asks if he can kiss her. Can I kiss you? If you want. Take notes, gentlemen. Yeah. Like, this is consent language yep. in 1975. It's very straightforward, and I love it. I wrote nice and consensual. One of the things I love about all the consent education out there is they're like, you can make consent sexy, you can make consent vulnerable, you can make consent whenever you want. It doesn't strip anything from anything. And this is one of those moments where I'm like, this is so romantic and sweet. Like, ugh. I really liked it. Do you like it? Like what? Being a soldier? No, not really. Then why are you? Because I was called up. Is that all? Yeah. Yeah, we gotta do it for the ones that came before. He steps on her dancing and says he's not very good on his feet. And I'm like, in the margins, I'm like, you are in the infantry. <laughs> <laughs> Might want to take more dance lessons. They do it for football players. You should do it for infantry people. You want to be nimble. There's so little time now. Mm. Why do you say that? I don't know. Just a feeling. 
She says, you'll be back. There will be time. And then she kisses him and it cuts to a scene that just broke me. It was one of the one of the most memorable scenes from a movie ever that just came out of nowhere and totally sideswiped me. Right when she says there'll be time. You'll be back. And there'll be time. Cuts to the two of them going ashore on a Higgins boat. It's so grim. It's like, and so beautiful. Like it's, this shot came out of nowhere and I was like, that is so smart and so scary at the same time. I don't know. I really, I really like all of this stuff here. I literally drew hearts all over this whole section of my thing. Like, this is so <laughs> sweet. And I want the movie to stop here. I just want him to leave the military. Just a wallet out of there with her. <laughs> it's a be- It's like a dream sequence. The, the scene is like a dream mm-hmm. sequence because that's how it takes us to the back of the truck and bump on the truck and the guy gets his head hit on the back of the truck. That's unpleasant. I don't want to ride around in trucks like that. Yeah, we get some guys, just good old squatties chatting. Guys in trucks. And they just, they're just they just getting moved around and moved around and moved around and moved around, probably so that, you know... It just doesn't, nobody can get any sort of actual intel on what's going on. Just move them around for no rhyme or reason. It'd be maddening. Yeah. It'd be really hard to just have to sit and move and sit and move and sit and move and wonder. The problem being that, that Tom was supposed to meet up with who we now, who we learn later on is uh, Julie, I think. Yeah. Janie. Janie. Right? Janie is actually the woman's name. We'll learn later on her name. But anyway, he and Janie had set up a date. 6 p.m. like the next two the day after next we saw this in batch eight episode two bloody sunday where the Mm. the romantic couple set a time to meet and then he didn't make it because he went to the protest and didn't come back and they have this this scene between him and her when he's going ashore where she's like why didn't you come back and why didn't you tell me and it's just Mm -hmm. and this isn't like now where it's just easy to find these people Literally, the only thing he knows about her is that they were going to meet back there that day. Like, you can't. Yeah. You'd think they'd show us some sympathy. You know what I heard a GI said? <laughs> oh, yeah. This line's amazing. You know where you can find sympathy? It's in the dictionary between shit and syphilis. Technically true. <laughs> Technically true. I mean, there's a lot of other things in there, but yes. <laughs> this is where we get a 1944 classic song by Noel Gay and Ralph Butler. This is, we don't know where we're going till we're there, and we just see troops and troops and equipment and equipment moving and moving and moving. First aired, it says on the BBC show ITMA, this song became very popular among evacuees. We don't know where we're going until we're there. War footage up until now has been backgrounded with what we've described as horror music, like literal, frightening, or just empty sounds, like long, droning, plain sounds. Now we're starting to see all of that footage with our hero in the back of a truck to this song. This is like one of the only like cynical moments, one of the only kind of winky moments, I feel like, in the whole movie. This made me think of the winking going on in Jarhead just a little bit. Just a little bit. It's like, don't worry, be happy, except it's honest. 
Mm-hmm. And using a song like that from the time period, yeah. Bobby McFerrin did not write Don't Worry Be Happy to be used the way that it ultimately gets used, we have said. This song is a great example of, like, stay plucky, here's a cheerful tune, and it's because there's the blitz and there's the war going on. It's an amazing song. This is an, We have found so much amazing music on this show, and this one's on the list. It's not so bad in Somerset where the cider apples grow. It's not so bad on Salisbury Plain with a Mary Jane, you know. It's not so bad in Lancashire a couple of weeks a year. But oh, crikey, where do we go from here? They've chased us round and round the barrack square. Now we're on the road to anywhere No one's in the know We're singing as we go Oh, we don't know where we're going until we're there Yeah, this one's pretty good. We only hope the blinking sergeant major knows the way. So British. (laughs) I mean, you have to blink. I'm like, everybody blinks. Oh, come on, you guys. Freaking British. You know, shame me into drying these old peepers out. It's such a great insult because they're like, what did you call me? Like blinking. You do blink, don't you? Like That's not an insult. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Tom isn't going to get to his date. Nope. And he's in, uh, he's in formation and he's getting the rundown that nobody's leaving. There's going to be no leave. No mail is going to get sent out. If you are sending out mail, it's not going to be sent till a later time. Mm-hmm. This is the final preparations. So everybody is on lockdown and you understand how important it is. Yeah. Again, with the don't know where we're going till it's there, I wrote boats, trucks, tanks, boats, tanks, trains, jeeps, jeeps, shoots, shoots, ships, um, lifts. Uh, water wheels yeah. i wrote lots of uh, equipment and preparation and then i also wrote fascinating it's all fascinating stuff to just watch yeah and, and again it's inevitable it is determined it atomizes the people the people are insignificant and meaningless your attention is always on the vehicles or the machines or the weapons mm-hmm. and it has this very constant forward motion to it Janie shows up in front of him as he's standing information getting the news yeah i thought it. you were meeting me tonight and he's like i can't Am I going to wait for you? I don't know. I do, though. Goodbye, Tom. I love this stuff. It's such an interesting love story. You know? Like, the girl back home... Because after that one moment, she's just imagined. Right. That's it. They had exactly one encounter. They had one dance. Mm -hmm. They had one kiss. They don't know anything about each other. Obviously, it's like the first probably woman he's really felt this way about maybe i don't know seems that way mm-hmm. she makes him feel better he says i was very nervous about talking to you and now i feel better and it's like she gave him something to kind of feel good about you know yeah sadly we don't get to watch the love story between them we do get to see him giving his uh, next of kin and stuff his identification they take another picture mm-hmm. for their records they say <laughs> and they fingerprint him for some reason, when they fingerprinted him in parentheses in my notes, while they're fingerprinting him, I wrote, this dude's going to die. <laughs> I'm like, this dude, for some reason, when they fingerprinted him, I'm like, that's where that goes. Is This is it for me. <laughs> yeah, this is where um, I started thinking of, there's a Cox Bar song called uh, Out on an Island. 
number is a hero And every hero's a son But every son's just a number When the battle's begun So don't go waiting on the corner for me Cause I'm gonna be They get paid in francs, and that is immediately followed by gambling. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of guys gambling. A lot of guys, it looks like they're sending some money home. Um, it's all a lot of stuff that we saw. That, And I guess it just is a thing that they do because, I mean, what are you going to do with the fucking money? That's what I thought, right? It's like mm-hmm. you really can't spend it tomorrow, right? We saw that in the Dam Busters and all this other stuff. It's like yeah. pay the debt tomorrow, spend your money today. <laughs> it was bad luck, uh, bad luck going into uh, yeah. into Normandy in in Longest Day. Right. Yeah, that was last episode. Money. Where they, it was last uh-huh. episode two where they said the dude made like $10,000 on the boat. And it's like, if you have this many people getting paid for a month worth of work and you win a couple of hands at poker, you're going to be sitting pretty. Like, yeah. Especially people that just want big bets. They just want big exhilarating moments that take their mind off of where they are. We get more camp stuff. The gambling. Not quite a dirt map, but we do get to see some big ass maps. It's not a big board. It's not a dirt map. It's a big map on the ground. <laughs> and I'm mm-hmm. like, I mean, that's. I wrote, I wrote <laughs> nice wargaming maps because some of them have like raised trees and stuff and everything. <laughs> they took the big board and they put it in the dirt. I think we can call that some version of these two things. I also felt weirdly like this is kind of something they might do to help buck people up. Like, I feel like it makes you feel a little better to have those amazing, huge aerial maps that just seem like we have it all figured out. We can see mm-hmm. everything. We know everything. Here's where you're going to go. And I know that it's not that simple, but it just seemed very ostentatious to me. And I know. I mean, at least for your leaders to, if they have at least an idea of what the area is like. Yeah. Then it helps out a, a whole lot, you know, for Christ's sake. Yeah. It's a very quick moment, but you see a close up and you see the beach and you see them tracking with the pointer up this like road to this little circle. And then they point and there's like, it's just that. And and that looks very simple like that. But once you go in situ, okay, so now you are in France yeah. and you're five miles from where you're supposed to be or two miles from where you're supposed to be. Or are you right where you're supposed to be? I, who knows? Let's figure, is this the road? Let's go up this road. Is That's not the right road. <laughs> it's not how that works you'd have to be a total expert at like that geolocating or like that yeah those people that can take like a street view picture and then like fly through the map yeah and figure out where it's from yeah we're not all as good as owen wilson on the hillside and we can just imagine the map in our head when we look <laughs> at it some of us have to stand there and be like is this the tree or is that the tree i don't know <laughs> mail call arthur and jack are there tom gets some a package. He gets a pile of mail. Yeah, he gets a key from his parents for turning 21. Mm-hmm. It's just a tradition that they do, man of the house, taking over the property or whatever. Two sweet moments here that really stood out to me was right away they when he came in with the mail, they all stood up like they were getting mail. And he's like, no, this is all for me. Crushing. Just crushing. <laughs> I don't, you know, those dudes are like, fuck you, Tom. <laughs> Happy birthday, I guess, because mail's got to be pretty important. And then when he leaves, the guy says, do you mind if I look at your cards? And he's like, no, go ahead. And he picks the card up and he looks at the way it kind of 
I imagine there being like glitter or something on it. It like kind of flakes off in his fingers. It's so meaningful how like urgent they are to hold something from home, even if it's not their home. Mm-hmm. Like any connection. It's not desperate. It's not super angry, but it's very, very potent. Tom also gets a nice pen. Yeah, fountain pen. boy. Tom writes a letter with his new fountain pen. Army Post Office, England. Dearest mum and dad. And this is where he says it's like being part of a machine that grows bigger and bigger while we grow smaller and smaller until there's nothing left. Yeah. He says, thanks. He says, don't worry. He says, they're feeding me well. It was so nice to hear from you. You don't have to worry about me. We are eating very well in this camp. Although the beds are hard, I'm getting plenty of sleep. The beds suck, but I'm sleeping pretty well. It reminded me a little bit of Shaw's letter. Mm. At the very beginning of Glory, that letter home was one of the most memorable things about that movie to me because he's like... Dear mother, I hope you are keeping well and not worrying too much about me. You mustn't think that any of us are going to be killed. For they are collecting such a force here that an attack would be insane. You mustn't worry that any of us are ever going to get killed. There's such an enormous force here. No one would ever attack us. And in that line, it's like, this guy could get killed at any time. Yeah. And it's like something about the letter home. You got to be like, don't worry. At the point that you're saying that, we are acknowledging that everyone is very worried. Um, He also writes that everything outside the army and my mates here has faded away. Yep. Know that feeling. We also see, um, as he's writing this, we see airplanes blowing up in the air. A lot of dogfight footage, guys bailing out of airplanes. We see a guy almost get like fucking hit by the airplane as he's parachuting out. Holy yeah. shit. That footage was wild. We hear him talk about um, poor Tina. He says that that he feels like he would have had uh, more of a reaction had Tina about the news from Tina. So poor Tina is, is gone. Um, but he also said that he was going to ask them to keep one of the puppies, but there's no point. It's very youthful. I wrote, this sounds like a young person talking about death to me. You know, it's like, I feel like there's, I felt this with myself with a lot of my friends, maybe where like late teens, twenties, you can confront death as just like, well, this is just the thing. You know, it's just, it's, we're all, it's, it's, we're all going to die. What are you going to do? I'm grateful that he's not afraid, I guess. I think that that's good. This is a little naive. This, this does come off as like a little bit naive and it's reasonable. I don't even think it's like naive, really all that naive. I feel like he's just, I feel like he's, he's not naive. I think this is like the least naive, the night to be naive would be to think that you had any chance. You'd make it. Mm Mm-hmm. I said at the beginning, he's not naive because he knows he's going to die, you know? So it's like, that's not quite Mm -hmm. the right word. He keeps saying that this, he just doesn't seem to care. He doesn't seem to give it any gravity. Yeah. Part of it is like, he's had no choice. He just doesn't see a way out of it. Yeah. It's like, literally, this is what he's for. It's like, this is all he is for. This is what he's for. And this is what he's going to do. And that's it. And everyone agrees. And everybody, and everybody back home is sending him. Literally. From his parents. Yeah. To the, the people at the train. To the guy welcoming mm-hmm. him when he gets off the train, all the way through, everyone is just like, "This is where, this is where, this is where," and it's so weird because we see it go. at the intensely personal level, and then with these intercuts to just this enormity of it that aggregates that realization across every single helmet that you see in that stock footage. It's just wild. Mm-hmm. Endless planes, ships, gliders. I wrote so much combined effort for what? Like, obviously, we know we had to 
kill Nazis or whatever. But it's like, if we can do this for World War II, why can't we do this for desalinization plants around the world or something like that? Free healthcare, free housing, Mm -hmm. free education. Nope. No, 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 no. Some barrage balloons and some of this uh, footage. I always think of an artist named Boris Artsy Bashif. Whenever I see barrage balloons, he drew um, pictures during that time that were anthropomorphizing machines. And he has like drawings of of barrage balloons where they, they look like creatures that are that are floating. Also like big tanks that are that are creatures and and battleships and stuff. I've been seeing weirdo stuff saying Zeppelins could make a comeback and blimps could make a comeback. And it'd be very weird because sci-fi is like, absolutely. And for the past 20 years, whenever we've seen blimps in sci-fi movies, we're like, that's adorable because these things always feel old. (laughs) Now, when I see barrage balloons, I think of our last episode, the longest day where we talked about how over a thousand black troops went ashore for Normandy. And a lot of them were putting up those kinds of balloons. That's the work that they were doing, taking casualties And rather than see a movie about them, we're going to see sympathetic depictions of Nazis again and again and again and again and again. Bombs dropped on fields. Wow. We just see footage from down from the the bomb bay doors of of bombers as they drop bombs and bombs that seem to all land in fields. And I say, maybe that's like uh, denying them like food sort of thing. It's either just missing or they're generating cover. Mm-hmm. That's a big empty field, and now it's a big empty field with holes in it that people can hide in if they were trying to get across that field in some kind of offensive is what I was thinking. Either way, you see them coming out, you see them falling, they're huge, they're metallic, they're heavy. When they hit the ground, you see these concussions. All of it is very banal. None of it is exciting. None of it is really even super scary. A lot of it is just this is what's happening. It just seems like business. Huge. Yeah. And it is huge. The explosions are tiny. The map is tiny. But in your mind, you're like, oh, my God, that's a huge explosion. Wow, that's a big explosion because of the altitude. Planes strafing, trains, cars, boats, everything. Yep. Bombs falling, guns buzzing, things getting exploded. It's ramping up. Loading, people loading into a landing craft. I wrote, I haven't seen Tom in a while. Yep. And I think that's completely... The point of the movie is that he's lost now in the machine. That line puts so much of it together. Mm -hmm. It's like being part of a machine which gets bigger and bigger while we grow smaller and smaller until there's nothing left. That that's like that is what the movie is doing. And this is where I started getting real like Dam Busters vibes. Mm -hmm. Right? Like the pair is going into the, the plane and everything like that. I'm like, I'm like, this movie is so different. Yeah. It's it's literally frequently the same footage. And if not the same footage, identical costuming, identical walking, identical shot angles. Yeah. <laughs> but so different. Yeah, they're all coming from the from the same sources. Mm-hmm. I will say all of this footage, all of this like things taking off, things taking off, people getting in, the plane takes off. I wrote grim, determined silhouettes, and then in parentheses here I wrote heroic, stoic. Like this, this kind of does a little bit of the History Channel stuff for me. Even though this movie's doing everything brilliantly, this little moment here, I'm like, this, this could salvage this movie for the right viewer if they're not critical in how they watch. I think it's going to be denied. The the ending of this movie is exceptional, but that was kind of my only takeaway here. I was wondering if the movie is, you know, it shows all this stuff ramping up. 
and it's letting us know that he's that he's lost in the machine. We haven't seen him on screen in a long time. But it's that look I feel like that he gives us in the cell where he breaks the the fourth wall and looks at us. And it's like we passively are just letting the movie roll on and we're dooming him as a character. And we passively seem, I mean, not passively, I guess, because it takes a lot of hard work, but passively as a culture, let this, this buildup of, of stuff go on. And we see it with the people back at home where they've all just passively accepted this, that people will just go and die until an eventual victory, whatever that is. To, until the end of the movie, yeah. Until the end of the movie. I'm nodding emphatically through this whole thing. It's like the movie puts us in this, like we are literally as an audience in the same place as his parents and the guy in the thing and, yeah. And we, and we're kind of more on the hook for it than we are in Saving Private Ryan because we are actually seeing real death. Right. Like with those bombs dropped those are real people dying down there. And we actually saw like the actual real bodies. Right. And so it's, it's making us a bit more at fault. I was talking to Biggs and I'm like, I think we're either going to watch saving private Ryan at the end of this series or like a Lord of the Rings movie because of the way episode three has been going in these batches recently. I'm not sure we're not there yet, but um, if we do compare this movie and when we inevitably compare this movie to saving private Ryan, the whole thing Saving Private Ryan gets kudos for is like, what did we say? The, 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 what happens isn't real, but the combat is. Everything is fake except for the blood and guts. And it's like, look at the carnal realities of war. You literally just proved and made a great point that this movie is doing all of that. But it is not Spielberg vocab at all. And literally no. the name itself, Saving Private Ryan, compared to Overlord. I'm just really stuck on how thematically one of them is about saving a private because and we're gonna and he'll earn this and the arlington moment and all of this and this movie is none of that and and people will turn to saving private ryan and be like yeah but it accomplished this and it's like one weird and gross and two so does this movie in much more meaningful ways isn't there a video game called overlord where you are like a dungeon master then you're trying to stop heroes from coming in to um, take over your dungeon or whatever. You kind of play as the bad guy. Wikipedia says there is a game called Overlord from Codemasters that came out in 2007. Yeah, Fellowship of Evil. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it goes way back into the 90s as well. It was one of those old PC things. But are you like the Overlord as the watcher of the movie that you're dooming the guy? Is that like... Wow. Is that almost like stranger than fiction? Yeah. Holy shit, Charles. This movie is making like the Hollywood entertainment complex, not even the Hollywood entertainment complex, the just cinematic and like war culture entertainment complex part of that in that capacity. Really great. I love that. <laughs> like Because then it would also be saying that that like the Hollywood cinematic complex that that perpetrates more of this sort of thing yeah that it's it's saying that it's all the same kind of in the in in, in the same way that we want that, that we in, in, enabled and embodied and enacted that whole military machine sending tom to go fight right that we feel that it's enabling yeah, yeah we're sitting here judging the family and we're sitting here judging the people at the train station and we're also sitting here waiting to see what happens at the end of this movie having paid our ticket to go see the movie and mm -hmm. yeah 
And the plot is the overlord and what drives the plot. It ain't the writer or the director. It's the audience. The audience drives the plot. Hmm. Huh. Hmm. This movie's so smart. Somebody write a paper on that because I'm not in school. Nobody I do it. I, I saw some Reddit thing that's like, what's a little known movie that you've seen that you really like? And I'm like, this one, this one, this one, this one. I mean, this one before the rain, the bridge, so many, but mm-hmm. definitely this one. Now everybody is in the landing craft. Yeah. Okay, kind of like the same thing as as how the movie started, but we start getting some flashbacks. And in the flashbacks, one of them is where they're burning their personal papers. They can only take like a, an ID card or something and their uh, and their Bible. We talked about this in the Glory episode, Batch 1, Episode 2. You said yeah. this is something that you did. And when I watched this, I thought of you right away. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you if you remembered, what did you burn? A lot of letters and stuff. I think the only thing I keep I kept really was I had a, I had a death letter that i that i kept in my body armor but aside from that i um i got rid of pretty much most of the the personal stuff was it was there because in this moment he burns the letter that he was going to send to his parents Mm -hmm. the letter that he wrote with the new pen to say he got the pen and that they shouldn't worry and that he knows he's going to die and that he knows he's going to die yeah he burns that letter and it's so sad it's like really sad when he burns it because you feel like that was a very meaningful letter and he watches it burn and then he says, now I have nothing. I have nothing left. I've got nothing now. I've thrown it all away. Yeah. Is that like us? You know, it's like we're throwing, I mean, we've watched all this stuff yeah. that we're just going to feed into a fire, throwing it all away. Could have built a lot of roofs for that. This is a weird connect, but there's been a few kind of fairly like traumatic accidents in my life, a car crash, a couple other very, very severe falls that led to fairly major surgery. And my awareness in hindsight of those really made me feel like everything that happened up until that moment was like me ticking up the hill on a roller coaster before something happened. And in the moment, I didn't realize it. And and this, this is how I always remember it. And I get that vibe in a lot of this movie and definitely here. I could see that being a literal kind of throwaway moment, but also being a very meaningful moment at the same time. I don't know, really this is sobering it's, it's sad it's like he's just he's like he's disappearing he's truly just accepting that he's completely disappearing yeah a flashback uh arthur and tom are running through the rain they take cover they're trying to get back um to to post they take cover into a little theater and there's a mom and she's got stephanie or whatever her name is on the stage the little girl she's a little girl and she really doesn't want to be on the stage. She is just stumbling very quietly through a through a song that the mom is making her rehearse seemingly over and over again. And the two guys are sitting there watching it. And then she sees that they're sitting there. They give her some applause, you know, maybe because it's it's polite. Yeah. And um and the mom notices that they're there and she's like, Oh, sing it for them again. And the little girl's like, obviously doesn't want to fucking say this again. They've doomed her as an audience. Holy shit. They've doomed her. If they stay, they doom her as an audience. Watching. (laughs) My God. It's going to spend like four hours on this movie, Charles. I don't ever want to stop talking about this movie because the compulsory nature of this moment. A little girl on stage forced to sing. Part of me, again, is like, this child is enduring the blitz. 
And it is one thing as an adult to say, keep calm and carry on. And it is another thing as an adult to tell a child to do that on stage singing a song. There's just something very deeply disturbing about the mom's insistence that she sing, about the lyrics of the song. Ultimately, the song by uh, the version I have is sung by Ruby Murray. Let him go, let him tarry, and it's about letting him go. Let him go, let him tarry, let him sink or let him swim. He doesn't care for me, nor I don't care for him. He can go and get another that I hope he will enjoy. For I'm going to marry a fire nicer boy. Then he wrote to her a letter saying... It's a love song. It's a weird love song about letting him go. May he sink or may he swim. This twosome fella's about to get into a Higgins boat. They're sitting up there listening to this like, I don't know how I feel about this song. I don't know how I feel about this. We're going to clap politely and leave. And the mom makes them sing again. And I did not notice this the first time. I'm not sure if you did. The first time I missed it. But the second time it, again, gave me the same feeling as it did on the train when the guy said it's not a fucking joke. She says, no, don't go, don't go. And then she says, Thomas, don't go. Don't go, Thomas. Thomas. She does not know him. Please don't go. Well, I think she's saying Tommy's. I thought she said Thomas. Don't go, Tommy's. Tommy's. Please don't go. I think she's saying Tommy's because that's the common term for for assault troops in uh, in England. But in any case, the Tommy... It comes so close. It comes so close to his name. I mean, it's literally his name. So he's like... <laughs> and in my, fascinating. It's like peak nightmare vibe here. Mm-hmm. Like peak nightmare vibe. from the, we, Any kid doing anything weird and scary is going to make it weirder and scarier. This is a compulsory moment of nationalism, bucking up, keeping calm, carrying on. Kids trauma, totally traumatized. They're singing about his death to him and saying, eh, what are you going to do? And then they literally call him by name when he leaves. And I'm like, they don't know him. What the fuck's going on in this movie? I'm going to go back and listen. By now, the audience has heard the drop. But whew, it really jarred me the second time. I missed it completely the first time. So they have a choice whether or not they the, to make the girl endure the whole fucking song. Uh, they do the right thing and get out of there. Yeah. And, um, and I assume that she didn't have to finish because the Tommies were gone. I bet she sang it two more times. <laughs> <laughs> I've known parents like this. Thankfully, not my own. Everyone is nervous in the landing craft. This is it. They're going in. They show the craft circling because they have so many that have to go ashore and everyone can't get on at the same time. So you get in the boat and then you go around in circles. Yeah. Because other people get in the boat and then they go around in circles. And then more people get in the boat and they all go around in circles. And you're just sitting there circling in your boat. Yeah, to collect them all. Yep. And then all of a sudden the boat stops circling and it starts going straight. And it's like, oh shit. To get everybody like focused and their minds off of impending doom, they start um, going over facts about the regiment. Started in 1685. I remember that now. I didn't even have to write that one down. It made me think of the moment... in 13th Valley, when he starts singing the Go Alpha song, the first time in 13th Valley that he gets inserted into oh, the jungle, yeah. he realizes he's in the helicopter that typically gets shot down and he starts freaking out and he starts saying, Go Alpha, Go Alpha. He starts singing the song and here they're doing that regimental bullshit. Mm-hmm. It's almost like that stuff's put there for a reason. <laughs> yeah. Also in uh, in Jarhead, when they were um, they're inside the tent there near the end yeah. before he gets his brand. Yeah. yeah. And then they go over uh, like all the names that Jack uh, of girls that Jack is or Arthur have 
have dated or something like that. And at one point, Tom says, Janie. And they're like, oh, who's Janie? Yeah. Or no, is that your dog or something like that? Or right. whatever. And, oh, good, Tom. And then Tom starts thinking about Janie. Shall I show you how we prepare the dead? For me, it's they're, they're having this light moment doing the best they can. And they start listing, they, they try a list of, that's supposed to be funny and it brings him back to her. And all of a sudden he just has this like visceral response where he on the d- empty dance floor. Yeah. And then he, she's there with him asking if he wants to know how they prepare yeah, the dead where they, you know, he gets undressed with her, but it's in the context of him having been killed. It's very methodical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like literally cutting his underpants off with scissors and yeah. And she lays him out in a very Christ like pose that, chapter has a bit on this we'll get to and then she kisses him you know and he gets a spider-man kiss yeah he gets a spider-man kiss and then he says now bring me back yeah and she undresses and the sex is life yeah <laughs> and she goes in to kiss him and as she goes in it, it gets like blurry it's like she's leaning in to kiss the camera like mm-hmm. everything gets real slow here it really is like like that kind of hindsight moment before something big. You have these little flashes of memory of things you say. Mm-hmm. And it would be like her name. And then he has this memory. And then she's like coming in to kiss him. And then we see the eyeball from the beginning of the movie. Or from the poster, I mean. Right? Is that where this yeah. is? Tom, yeah. Tom, Tom like comes out of that thought and he like rushes to the lip at the front of the Higgins boat. And peers over the top, and he sees, we see in his eyeball, like, all of this stuff. Like, the, the, from the beginning, um, he met... He starts standing. He's, like, rising. He imagines his death, and then, sure enough, there's a burst of machine gun fire, and he just gets plinked in the head. And all of the guys um, are, like, kind of panicked and reacting to, to him. Very interesting camera motion in here, the way that they're moving in this panicked state. And then we see him, like his body get taken out, and he's just one of thousands, and we just see more guys pouring onto the beach, and more guys getting evacuated out, and then more people pour on the beach, and it's like we input bodies and we output corpses. His death is so fascinating. He starts to stand, and he definitely gets hit in the head. I it, whether it was machine gun fire or some kind of shell fragment. I thought it was like some kind of shell fragment, like something exploded. And then we see him running off the boat, and very explicitly, his boots in the sand, like he's running up the beach. And he gets shot, and he falls. But then we're back in the boat, and in my mind, it's like. I've often wondered what goes through your brain in those rando fast moments, right? Everyone has. You can have whole visceral experiences. And he thinks he made it ashore, I think. In my mind, he thinks he's on shore running up the beach. And he got shot like he thought the soldier in the thing. And But no, he's just still on the boat. And this was just some like total rando thing, just plunk. And now he's, and everyone looks and they're like, ah, and, and it's very panicked, very real. It, it feels like a bunch of random people seeing someone get hurt. And he's like the first person in the boat. Yeah. We've said to Saving Private Ryan fail because we win D-Day. And we thought that was pretty smart. This movie is like, this is what happens when you're the first person in the boat. And 
there's zero ceremony to it. Typically, the movie would follow those people to the church after the big fight, and they'd be sitting there in the church being like, what was his name? Beddoes. Beddoes. That's right. What did he say? Oh, there's going to be a death in the family. Oh, fucking Beddoes. Typically, the movie follows those people. Overlord follows Beddoes through his deranged moment and then off through the machine with this music playing. This like, it's not super dramatic definitely sad (laughs) sort of fly away we see the countryside and we see clouds and then we see the castle again and then that's the end of it it's like 17 names yeah Yeah. i couldn't figure out how much money this cost to to make but the imdb says it made three thousand dollars so you should audience buy this movie if for no other reason than to give it a little more money because that number makes me sad (laughs) yep it is on a nice criterion it's so good it's this was i really freaking love this movie is this the best normandy story you've ever seen like this is the best normandy story i've ever seen yeah maybe yeah yeah i never thought of it like that is this a realistic war story i think so i feel like yes it's it's way more realistic than saving private ryan as far as like, what is your bar for realism, right? Let's let's parse that out someday. But like, it has so many of the same parts of a Hollywood movie. Yeah, it's got real footage. It's got all of the in processing moments. It's got your boot camp stuff. It's got your camaraderie stuff. You're you're meeting the troops. You're seeing the troops. You don't get to know much about them. We know a little about Beto's. It's such a weird stereotypical movie. This movie does like superficially. If you were to give me the script for this movie just the script for this movie i would be like i don't know i don't know this looks like a war movie to me i mean the actual script has got to be like two pages long and it's got like no dialogue to it carry none of the commentary like how would you write the edited commentary the war footage and the the audio in i mean it would be like scary music and you'd read that and you're like i don't know (laughs) this seems like a basic war movie to me and now I watch this movie and I'm so glad it exists and I wish more people knew it as the Normandy movie. Like, I mean, it's pretty much like a lost movie until it, it showed yeah. up at whatever film festival that was in 2006. Huh. It's just a it's not a it's not a well-known movie. There is nothing. I mean, there's things that that jump out at me as being low budget. Yeah. And that's fine. Right. It doesn't it doesn't bother like him falling down the mountain was actually confusing to me when that happened. I was like, I don't understand what the fuck just happened here. Maybe I needed a wider shot to establish that they were he was up on a hill. Right. Um, it was so very filmy. <laughs> right. In all of the condescending ways. <laughs> um, but aside from that, it's just there's there's something to be said about in in like pages of script where we're actually hanging out with Tom versus the amount of sheer stock footage that we watched it's a lot it's a lot you know it's got to be like 60 40 of of stock the footage stock footage might have actually out, out yeah like more. like stock footage to Tom in my mind like right. i don't know i think so i think possibly even more it would be i'd be curious and planes so, say more in this movie than tom does <laughs> so what would happen if we took out all of the shooty shooty stuff from a regular war movie from like a war war movie? Yeah. How much does the, do the characters get? 
And so I, it's like the movie's almost making a commentary on, on war spectacle by giving us actual literal war spectacle. Right. And, and saying, I don't know, it's saying something about, about it and about like how the character is just sort of lost because I was mesmerized by the, yeah, the character is meaningless amongst all the other spectacle. And I feel like there's two ways of reacting to that footage. I feel like half of the audience sees that footage and literally starts thinking this is kind of boring just because it's like, oh, this is just all stock footage. And that's not what I want. That's not what I paid for. That's not what I came here for. I don't want to see a bunch of stock footage. And then there's also an audience that looks at all that stock footage and they're just like, holy crap, that's a that plane is like going straight down at the ocean or those little pockmarks that you're seeing are like the size of a house. There's an audience that can view that for what it is, which is just preeminent destruction and malice in a very banal frame. And in each case, the movie is accomplishing what you're talking about. And in each case, it's got a kind of, you know, we haven't watched come and see yet. We've read plenty about it, but it's, it's not even from what I've learned from that movie. It's not even, it's, there's gore in it, but but they're not. It's not really even here for that gore. It's just here to say this is the shooty shooty. There's your shooty shooty. And anyone who's upset with how boring or flat or like not exciting it is, it's like, but this is all stuff from the militarists. You get it? This is all propaganda material that they're using. We're giving it to you. This is hyped up stuff. Typically, this would have a blaring trumpet and them being like, you know, our boys were pounding the Germans today, and this is, you know, it's fascinating. The book chapter that we talked about at the top, if I could just touch on it real quick. Yeah, go ahead. Libby Saxton has this. Um, uh, it's not a book chapter. I'm sorry. I keep getting this wrong. Uh, it's an article in um, Screen, which is put out by Oxford University Press, and it's called The Falling Soldier in Film. It's by Libby Saxton. Generally, just in a nutshell, the argument is that historically, the way that this picture has been picked up, we've had quite a few conversations about whiteness on this show and the complexities and the historicity of whiteness and what is and isn't white. Um, coding Spanish folks as white is complex and problematic. But historically, what has happened, she says, is two things. Number one, this picture has been understood as much through cinema as it has been understood through photography. So a lot of people look at this photo as a form of history from like photography, and they think of it that way. And she's like, it's been picked up in the cinema in so many ways of equal importance. And she lists multiple movies that have been inspired by it. And she says that in the cinematic versions, they're coding it the representations with a form of kind of crucifixion whiteness, a kind of cruciform whiteness. And you see that very explicitly in this movie when Tom is laid out with his arms out and everything like that. Not in the recreation of the shot, but like the crucifixion of the white boy is very overt. And all she is doing is just commenting on how it, in it, even whether it's true, whether it's false, really no matter how you read it, it has this kind of sacrificial overtone to it that... um in many ways lionizes the the ideology of white soldiering. She has this other thread in it that is exceptional about how the photograph is still seen as more authentic than film because it's a moment. It's a capture. It's a single instant. And the film is so many moments, so many captures. And she talks about how movies themselves will revert to the still frame to make a point how the movie will have some of the most poignant moments in it. And I thought about Welcome to Sarajevo when they came around the corner and it froze and they all just stood there. And it's like still frame in a movie. It's called a movie because they're supposed to move. But the movie will revert to the still frame to, quote, capture. 
to instantiate a moment in time, one moment, this moment. So she's got these two threads in there based on this um, picture and the movie Overlord comes up as one of the, the films. And she says that um, just basically she says more symmetrical and thus more unmistakably cruciform are the fantasized death throes of army recruit Tom in Overlord, which director Scott Cooper confirms were modeled on Kappa's still. Uh, the real ones of saint-like Sergeant Elias Willem Dafoe in Platoon, uh, which are satirized by the collapse of uh, the actor in Tropic Thunder. And she just kind of goes on and on and on and to how this has shown up. So that was that article. And then just leaving quickly with a glance at Jacksonian militarism. We said Jacksonian militarism in its purest form a reduction of the world to aggressive warfare. Yes, this movie is doing that. Um, and unleashing a pleasurably righteous violence on perceived enemies in the name of preemptive action. Nope. This is going on during the Blitz. There's every platform, at historical and fictional, to be like, we will get our vengeance. We will bring this fight to the fucking Hun. They have that vocabulary. And a lot of movies do that. And a lot of movies did that. And, you know, the fiction does that. And this movie is just vacating that. And this is an Americanized model of militarism, but we have said it's rooted very explicitly on colonized mindsets coming from Spain and England and France and all these other places. This movie is so good. It's just so good. It upset. I don't know that it is an anti-war movie, but I do think that it is exceptional at destabilizing what we want from one of the most important military campaigns in history, I think, as far as our cinematic imaginary is concerned. Other battles may be more important, but Normandy on the screen is maybe like the battle, <laughs> you know, I don't right. know. Right. Yeah. Back to the, to the Christ image. Yeah. Do you think it, I mean, uh, you know, Jesus as a a son sacrificed in order to to save people or whatever right you know i guess there's a, there's a thread you could pull at where it's talking about sacrificing your your sons you know the parents just send him away and he says now bring me back yeah. and we know we can't no matter how much she fucks him yeah. no matter how much she rides him cowgirl he's never going to get the life back mm -mm. eventually the rigor mortis is going to the the post post death erection <laughs> i mean there's creams and things to make skin young again but i don't think we got anything for that it's not gonna work in this in this way a monkey's paw maybe and i think biblically that's what worked with jesus right that is how he was resurrected was they somebody wrote him cowgirl yeah i think that's what it was that is now part of this episode <laughs> <laughs> that is one of the revelations from overlord wow. insightful film insightful yeah film. wow very smart <laughs> It's very smart. That was in the Gnostic Gospels. Yeah. Right. So now that we're going to hell, Charles, can I ask what is next? This is our last batch. This is our last movie. What is the, in all of the other batches that we have been recently doing, the third movie has been mm. a, a, a bit of a leap to a different tone or a different, which is why I thought maybe mm. Lord of the Rings, which is what I told Biggs, but I don't know. What's, what's cooking, Charles? Tell me. Well, Aaron, I hate to disappoint you. I'm going to land it real, uh, real obvious here. We've been talking about D-Day. We were talking about how war is hell. So we are going to go to 2018. And we're going to watch Overlord. Three months ago, I was cutting grass in my front yard. By Julius Avery. The mailman shows up with a letter from the army. Now I'm here. No idea where I'm going to end up. All I know is that when I looked at the 
the text that he sent me with this movie on it, I was like, this movie looks like hot trash. <laughs> it looks like a computer game. <laughs> I didn't watch anything. I just okay. looked at the picture. Yep. I definitely didn't click it to learn more because I'm like, I don't need to learn about that. And now I'm going to spend a week. This is a movie I've already seen twice, my friend. And I'm going to watch it two more times for the sake of this show. Let me just put this out here right now. I fucking love Overlord. I loved the original Overlord and I love this one. Does this movie do a lot of hilarious things wrong? There's a lot of soldiers yeah. out there. Yeah. Are we going to have a lot of fun pointing them out? Yes, yeah. Oh, yeah, we are. Um, but does it also do a bunch of stuff right? And does it know what it is? And does it totally know what's going on when it does the wrong things? Or the, the tropey bullshit? Yeah, it totally knows. Yeah. yeah. It totally fucking knows. It has that yep. in common. And it gives me everything that I want from what it is, which is an incredibly serious movie about D-Day from the point of view of a black troop. There it is. Mm-hmm. Is it a remake? Yeah, this is, uh, I'm going to say that this is, I'm going to say it on the, on the record right now, right. that this is an American remake of the British, the Stuart Cooper movie, Overlord. Well, I'm pumped about that. I did notice that mm-hmm. there was a black person in the picture that Big sent me, and I was like, this looks like a new movie. Okay. Because, no, yeah, yep, you're going to finally get that representation. It. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm going to say that I'm looking forward to this movie, Charles, because it is part of this show, and I do look forward to our episodes. The worst movies we have watched so far have produced some of the best episodes, both in terms of <laughs> entertainment and also insight, I think. So, Overlord 2018, it is. I'm going to finish this list. It is now official. One movie from 1920, five movies from 1950, six no, five movies from 1960, four movies from 1970, six movies from 1980, two from 1990, four from the 2000s, and now six movies from the 2010s. That is your sample for season one. Pretty good. Nothing from 30 or 40 or 2020, but, you know, I would say generally that's a great intersection. Like, of we have four or more from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 2000s, and 10s four or more from those which i think is great excellent yeah we'll do more of this in the batch episode for now i have to go get my copy of uh david copperfield because i'm gonna want something to read okay i just gotta see what the hell is over the lip of this of this boat well if that works out okay (laughs) he didn't even make the beach You have to walk. It's not many miles. Zach and Matt are two veteran horror movie enthusiasts discussing their favorite and not-so-favorite horror films. Scary movie fans beware, or listen to Watch No Evil. 
News, reviews, and deep dives of the television series and film franchises you love. Take a tour of the popular media world with Biggs and Brandon on Not Safe for Network. Charles is a Purple Heart recipient and cinematographer. Aaron is a professor and critical cultural scholar. Together, they explore the narrative, affective, and production politics of war cinema on The Real War Project. That's R-E-E-L War Project. You can find all of these shows wherever you find your podcasts. You can find all of these shows on Redwood Sound Labs. <laughs>